Well, church family, it's a good morning to be together. And there's a classic, if, if you've, <clears throat> I guess, grown up in church, or you may have heard, I, I didn't grow up in the days where we did this, but there'd be the, uh, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, right? There's this reality that we speak and we talk about as if we know that God is good. And really in front of us today, the question is, is God in fact good? A.W. Tozer said it this way, he said, history shows no tribe or nation has ever risen morally above its religion. And remember, no religion has ever risen above its conception of God. If the people believe God is tricky, sulky, nasty, and deceitful, their religion will be built around that concept, and they will try to be sneaky with their God and act the way their God does. Christianity at any given time is either strong or weak depending on our concept of God. Our religion is little because we see our God as little. Our religion is weak because the God we see is weak. Our religion is ignoble because the God we serve is ignoble because we do not see God as He is. A local church will only be as great as its conception of God. Now, don't mistake what He's saying there. He's not saying that how we view God determines who God is. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is what we actually believe and how we actually see God is going to dictate how we relate to God and how we live out the supposed faith that God gives. And we either believe that God is who He says He is, or we risk the danger of being deceived and believe God is lesser than who He says He is. And that's the danger that we come to as we continue to walk through the book of James. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 16. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible or if you're distracted by your phone, I invite you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Find it on page 1071. Uh, is where we'll be, page 1071, James chapter 1, verse 16. And now remember last week. Last week, James was emphatic. We want you to understand that don't ever say when you are facing temptation as a believer, when you are facing temptation, don't ever adopt, don't ever believe the lie that it is God who is seeking to entice you to do evil. Instead, you need to recognize and you need to take responsibility that you're tempted, your temptation towards evil comes because there are desires, either desires that are off inside of you that are attracted to that, or you are being enticed in, in a desire that maybe is neutral, but you're walking down a path of fulfillment that's not inside of God's will. He says, don't, don't, uh, don't ever say this. And then, he, and then he says this, verse 16 really transitions. It applies just as much to last week as it does to this week. But here's what it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above continually coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought or He birthed us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures, among all His creation. 
In the midst of this setting, James, as, as he is there most likely in Jerusalem, he, he gets word of believers, believers he would have played a part in leading to Christ and discipling for a period of time before the persecution in Jerusalem scattered them abroad and, and sent them out over various regions. And these believers have, have fled to outlying regions for, for safety. And as they're in these outlying regions trying to reestablish their livelihood, uh, if, if, if they don't belong to a family that came to faith in Christ, they are cut off from their family ties and family support. They are reestablishing livelihood and working, and many of them, as we'll find later in the book, they are working for people who are defrauding them of rightful pay. They're hired to work 40 hours, they're worked 80 hours, and they're paid like they're working 15 hours. They are, facing, they are facing social prejudice because even in those outlying regions, Jesus would not be popular. And in the midst of that is they are facing these trials that are putting the genuineness and the authenticity of, and purity of their faith to the test. As we saw last week, there is a danger that they could begin to face temptation, but equally as they are facing that, you can imagine some of, some of the things that are swirling amongst them. Hey, man, did you really think when, when we heard that message about how good Jesus is, how He died on the cross out of love for our sin, how He is righteous and how He is holy, how He is, how he is risen, and, and, and we gave up everything to follow Him, and He's powerful, and, and remember what He told us to, to ask, to seek, to knock, and, and it will be given, yet, yet look at us over here. We, we, we are just, we're facing hardship and just continual suffering. I could <clears throat> barely afford to to put food on the table this week for my kids. And, and you can imagine in the conversations, well, this is because these people are, are doing this and doing this. And perhaps even there's some, some theologians who think that this group of believers may have even faced a danger to essentially, okay, if, if, if we're not going to have any defense in terms of the government, we're, we're going to punch. We're going to bring violence to the man. We're going to take him out. So word gets back to James and he writes this realizing and seeing where they are. And so he addresses, one, he addresses trials and he addresses one side last week. Don't blame your temptations on God. But look what he says. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into blaming your temptations on God. But also don't be deceived as you are in the midst of what is truly hard. Do not be deceived. And in the midst of that, begin to believe things about God that are not true and line up with what he says about himself. He says, don't be deceived. And you'll notice in there, he says, my beloved brothers. Now, just for a moment, we'll find as we walk through James, James does not, James does not like fluff. He doesn't, he doesn't coach what he says, really hard things with some flout. He just right there, right there, punch, punch, punch. And as we look through the book, there are going to be things that are going to pierce us far sharper than anything we've seen so far. But he says, my beloved brothers, because these, these people to James are not people that he is seeking to beat down into despair. It's not people that he's seeking to just go, let me see all your imperfections and come after you. No, that term, my, my beloved brothers, the ones who are of deep and precious abiding value to my heart, those whom, whom are, are specially, those whom are, are my preference, those people whom I love with the love of God. Understand, church family, that is James right. He does not write as one who's trying to be high and mighty. He writes as one who has a deep and abiding love for the people of God. 
And we need to be clear today just as we walk through all these passages. I know when I get up here, I can get worked up and I can get passionate. But understand, church family, if any of that passion is coming out, it only comes out not because I'm ranting and raving at this and that, but because there ought to be in all of our hearts, if we really know the Lord and see His Word, a passion that all of us as the people of God, that brothers and sisters in Christ, we would truly know His truth and live in the freedom that truth gives us in Christ. So understand, church family, today as we walk through this, just as James wrote to his beloved brothers and sisters, so, church family, it's a joy as your pastor. I I love you. I love you because God first loves me. I love you because God first loves you. And if I really love you according to the way that the Lord loves you, then it means all of us, we, we need the truth the way it says. He says, my beloved brothers, do not be deceived. Now, here, here's where we pick up. This is an interesting word, and I didn't check it in all the different English translations, the various way they, they translate it, but this is the core command today. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not continually go on being deceived. And it's either a passive or a middle verb. And you say, well, again, pastor, I don't care about grammar. And that's great because grammar wasn't my strong suit either. But here's what that means for translation. It either means Do not continually be deceived. So the idea of the deception is coming from somewhere outside. It is presenting something deceptive as true and leading you astray. That's passive. If it's middle, then the idea is do not go on deceiving yourself. In which case the deception is not something external. It is something internal that I am engaging in, that I am fostering, even though things externally may be pointing to it. And the reality is, church family, both are binding here because you and I can be deceived either way. And that word deceived, it means to go forward without a proper sense of direction, to be led astray, to be misled, to wander about aimlessly. Figuratively, it is the idea of being mistaken in one's judgment so that what you deem to be true is in fact mistaken and misleads you. It's, it's a word that pictures the same, some imagery we'll see in a moment. It pictures the idea of planets. What were planets known as in ancient times? Wandering stars. Why? Because you can navigate by the stars. The stars don't move. They're at fixed points. But planets appear bright, but planets have orbits. They're constantly moving. They're constantly shifting. One moment you see them, the next moment they're gone. One moment they're where you saw them, the next moment they're, are, they're, they're on the opposite side. This is the idea of deception, that when you and I are deceived, we're not only just misled, but it it leads us to a place where instead instead of moving with purpose, instead of moving in the right direction, we are wandering aimlessly, and it can come about externally or internally. In fact, one has said it this way, if the greatest temptation of the sinner, the person who is without Christ, is unbelief, the greatest temptation for the saint is misbelief. It's misbelief. It's to believe something that seems true but but isn't true. And I'll remind all of us, church family, that something which is 99.9% true is still 100% false. It's only true if it's 100% true. Now, you can say that statement has truth in it. Well, yeah, 99.9% of it's truth, but there's something in there that's not true. And we see this all throughout Scripture. This is the reality and danger of deception, church family. We see an enemy, Satan, beginning Genesis chapter 3. How do we see him appear? Did God really say? 
And then he partially quotes what God says and then also adds his own twisting and words to what God says. He's the one who came to Jesus. God, fully, the, the one who is fully God and fully man, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, let me quote your own word to you. And I'll quote it correctly. I, I will get the right check from my Awana listener. I memorized the verse correctly, but I misapplied it. That's what the enemy does. There is an external danger where the enemy, the father of lies, where he twists the truth to lead us to false places. There's a danger from the enemy deceiving us. There's a danger from circumstances. All of us, including the believers here, go through circumstances that whisper deception to us. Circumstances that whisper, is, is God really who He says He is? Hey, this circumstance is hard. This trial is real. This trial is, is piercing and cutting deep. Is God really good? Does He really hear your prayer when, it, when you don't feel anything special and prayer seems to bounce off the ceiling and you don't even know what to say? Are His eyes really on you when it just seems like every time you turn a corner, it's another blow to the gut? Circumstances will whisper deception. Not only that, but we live in a world full of brokenness and lost people that are, that are screaming and even more so in a bullying way saying, your God is, is not at all who He says He is. Your God is that bully God, that God of injustice, that God who, who allows things to take place. Your, your God is just make-believe and hidden in the sky. Your God is, and we see this all over the place from turning on the news to pulling up social media to conversations in the hallway at school. There's all sorts of external dangers to deceive us. There's also internal dangers because it's not just in a vacuum. It's why it's both Internally, we all, if we are honest, we have doubts. In the frailty and reality of being human and living in a broken and trying world, there are doubts that in the midst of those circumstances where we heal the screams of the world and the enemy can even entice with his temptation to doubt, we have our own doubts. Lord, am I, do, do you really see me? I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not fill in the blank with whoever your favorite pastor is. Do you really see me? We, do, are you really with me? God, we're, we're, we have our own doubts. We also are, are limited. We can, only see in terms of, we can only see in terms of what we can see. We can't see all of what God's doing. We, we don't know all of what he's, how He's moving. We don't see all the different ties. And so there is a danger, church family, when, when James comes here and says and, and places the command on all of us, do not go on any longer being deceived. Do not be deceived by anything external that twists the truth. Do not be deceived by your own self. Do not allow yourself to be deceived. Do not go on being deceived. We need to understand there is a real danger today living in the world we live in as human beings that we can be deceived about who God is. And if we begin to believe things about God that are 99.9% .9 true, but not completely in line with what He says about Himself, we will have a false perception of God that will cause us to relate to Him in a way less than who He is, less than how we ought to relate, which is why ultimately when it comes to the idea of deception about God's character, it's not just an issue of knowledge, it's an issue of love of true faith and trust. If I love Him, if I really trust Him, 
then I will believe He is who He says He is. And not who all the varying voices of deception tempt me to think He is. It says, do not be deceived. But if we're not going to be deceived, church family, then it means we're going to have to know something and look specifically about what James breaks down. He says, do not be deceived. But he says, but know this, know the character of God and know the gifts of God. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, continually coming down, never stopping to come down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All of a sudden, James gives us two key truths right off the bat after saying, do not be deceived. He says, know the character of God. And look who he says the character of God is. One, he names gifts. We'll come back to the gifts in a moment. But the fact that there are good gifts coming from above continually, they come from the Father of lights, referring to God. Well, the gifts are only good because God is good. The gifts are only coming because God in his goodness is generous. It says that God is light, meaning that God is clear, God is evident, God is who he is. Not only that, but it says that God does not change. This is the character of God. We find that God is light. He's the Father of lights. Now, quite literally, that means He is the one who is the creator over all of the heavenly lights. That's, that's literally what that title means. He is the one who has created the sun, the moon, the stars. He is the one, he is the one who is sovereign over them. He calls the stars out by name each and every day. He is the one who is sovereign over their movement, movements, over their signs. And by signs, I mean by things like eclipses and, and, and various phenomena like that. And there's a lot of, a lot of people get in the weeds with, with what, 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 do we, what all is meant here. But very simply, we know elsewhere from Scripture that God is light. There is no darkness with Him. And, and part of what's being said here by saying God is the Father of lights, there is no secrecy with God. Now, certainly there are things we don't fully understand. There's things God doesn't fully reveal. But here's what is true. There's not, he didn't shroud himself in secrecy as if you've got to go guess who he really is. He reveals himself clearly. He reveals himself clearly. There's, there's no shadow and darkness with God. We saw that last week. God is not allured by sin. He's not tempted by sin. He's not tricky, telling you one thing but then being another thing. And all of this is in contrast to various ways that man has conceived gods in the past. Zeus easily tempted by evil, delights in evil, filled with debauchery. Loki, the god of mischief, what's the idea there? And of course, it's been popularized by Marvel movies. It's, I'm going to deceive you, appear here and pop out here and this and that. That is not God. He is not tricky. He is not deceptive. He is not dark. He is the father of lights. Not only is the father of lights, but then tying it even bigger, not only is he light, but as the father of lights, it says, there's no variation or shifting of shadow, variation being there's no even, just as the stars have orderly movements, right? If the night sky in the summer is different than the night sky in the winter. The night sky in the northern hemisphere is different than the night sky in the southern hemisphere because you are looking at the stars from varying vantage points. And there is an orderly movement of the earth. Even that orderly movement that changes what we see there is no orderly movement with God. He doesn't change. It says shifting shadow, one that uh, really people like to, to get in, the idea of, of something being overshadowed or the phases of the moon or, or an eclipse. 
But the point is this, nothing, nothing can eclipse God. Nothing can block his light. Nothing can inter- interrupt the flow of, of his goodness. God does not change. Who God has been from all eternity is who he was at the moment time began of creation. Who God was there is, is the same as who God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the same as the God who, who then set things up after the fall. He's the same God who brought who called Abraham out of nowhere. He's the same God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's the same God who raised up David. He's the same God who sent the prophets. He's the same God who shows kindness and loving kindness and forgiveness to those who respond. He's the same God who pours out justice. He's the same God who sent his son Jesus. He's the same God who hung on the cross receiving the wrath. He is the same God that he will be for all eternity. God does not change. And if he doesn't change, then that means all the things we know about God, the fact that he is good. He was good back here, and he will be good there. He loved you and I before we were ever made, knowing full well the the absolute wretchedness of our sin and how we would be in total rebellion to him. He loves us at the moment of salvation. He loves us right now in this moment, no matter how well you walk with him when you came in this morning or not, and he will love us for all eternity because he doesn't change. We change. Sometimes we walk in, 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 in proper faith. Sometimes we walk in disbelief. Sometimes we walk in truth. Sometimes we walk in some deception. Sometimes we walk in circumstances where we feel God deeply. Sometimes we walk in circumstances where we are wiped out, exhausted, and He feels far away. We may experience change. By the way, we are all changing. You're about 10 minutes older than you were when, you first, when I first got up to preach which means you've lost some hairs. We're constantly facing change. God does not change. And church family, you think back to whenever you've had an encounter where it seems like God just took you to the mountaintop and you experienced His love and His mercy and grace and you gazed upon His holiness and awe and wonder and you think back to that moment that was so rich and so deep in, in ways that God moves. And if you find yourself today in a place where you go, I just... There, there's, there's that doubt. I don't know that, that that's my relationship with God anymore. I don't know that's... No, listen, church family, it says that there is no variation or shifting change, which means sometimes He may lead us on the mountaintop, sometimes He may lead us on the valley, but the God you saw on the mountaintop is the same God that walks with you and carries you in the valley. We've got to know His character. We've also got to know His gifts. He is generous. He is, he is good. It says that every good and perfect gift is from above. That anything which is given, anything which you and I can have that is good, that is useful, that is whole, that is perfect, that is without blemish, any good thing that can be had has as its source from above. And by from above, we mean from the one who is above, from God. That every good and perfect gift comes from God. And and this tells us something about God. Church family, we've seen it before when we looked at wisdom. God is generous. God enjoys giving. In fact, if you really want to do a study on what is meant when, by the love of God, by that agape love, that unconditional love that we typically, if you really do a study on that, biblically, God's love is the eternal giving of Himself. That's what God's love is. It is Him giving of Himself for another's good. God is generous. He delights to give. It thrills his heart. It is in his nature to give. And what God gives, 
What God gives to us is never evil. It is never half-hearted. It is never lacking. What God gives is only ever good and perfect because God is only good and perfect and He cannot give anything less. And so He gives and He he gives gifts. And by the way, by the fact that these are gifts, when you see God's gifts all throughout Scripture, they are never tied to our worthiness. None of God's gifts we deserve. None of us are worthy of His gifts. All of us are. We did nothing to earn our existence because at one point we didn't exist, so we couldn't have done anything to earn existence. We only exist because of God's sheer goodness and love. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation. We were enemies of God. We didn't cry out and say, God, we've got this sin problem and we'd really like to be reconciled to you. Can you do something about this? No, as we were thoroughly living our lives in rebellion and against Christ saying, we don't give a rip about who you are, God. In fact, we'll suppress anything you've placed around us and inside of us to draw us to you. God was the one who the whole time orchestrated a plan all in real human history to shine the light of the world, to bring in the fullness of time, Jesus the Christ the Son of God, fully God and fully man, second person of the Trinity, who really came and lived the life that we have failed to live, every man, woman, boy, and girl, who really on that cross became our sin and took the real punishment we very much deserve, bore hell, all eternal hell, right in that moment, six hours on the cross, who died a real death, who experienced death, but who who conquered, paid the price for sin, conquered sin and death, and rose on the third day, who sits now exalted at the right hand of God, who sees every one of us in this moment, who, if you are saved, has by his blood washed you clean and God has adopted you as a son and daughter. If you're in this moment, in this place today, or you're watching online and you don't have a relationship with Christ, then understand all of that he has done out of love for you and he sits at that throne and calls you by name. You have only to respond in repentance and faith. God delights to give and all of that has nothing to do with us being worthy of it. We're not worthy of any of it. We've not earned it. We could never earn it because it's an eternal chasm. And if that's God's faithfulness and love towards us when we're lost, then understand it's even more so as those who are now saved. That's why Paul says God is faithful even when we are faithless. God is generous. He gives gifts. These gifts are from above. They're not from earth. They're not from self. They're not things we produce. They're not things that can be manufactured. They're not things. They certainly are things in the earth. By the way, what are some of those gifts? Scripture says life is a gift. You and I have life because God gifts us breath. It says rain and basic provision are gifts from God. Genesis 2 says to have a, to, for, for, a, for a man to have a wife, for a wife to have a husband is a gift of God because God looked down on Adam and said it's not good. And God of his own accord brought Eve. Psalm 127 says children are a gift from God. John 3.16 says eternal life is a gift of God. Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit being a gift from God, the third person of the Trinity. We've seen in James that wisdom is a gift from God. We see that when someone comes to faith in Christ, spiritual gifts are a gift of God. Jesus himself is a gift because God gave his only son. What are God's good and perfect gifts? These these are only some. Now, James is going to hone in and really focus in all of that on the gift of salvation because that is the single greatest gift that you and I could ever know. These are God's good and perfect gifts. 
They include these things. They are good. They are from above. And anything, church family, that in this world is truly a good gift, even if it's something of this world, right? Obviously, my spouse, um, I think, I think, Bethany's incredible. I have a very high view of her, but at the end of the day, she's also just as human as I am, so she's, it's not like she descended down out of heaven. But that relationship of husband and wife that God has allowed me to have in my life, that is a gift. Even if it's of earth, anything that is truly good is only good because it first is a gift that was in the heart and mind of God that He has allowed and given. And these gifts, Scripture says, are worthy of our desiring. Jesus says that, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. In fact, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, will mention the secret to overcoming sin and temptation in life. It says to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above. What are the things above? They're, They're the things of God, the things that God gives you want to know the power and strength to, to say no to the temptation of, of gossip or lust or lie, whatever the temptation is, you want to know the secret? It's, it's to set your will as a child of God. You must be a child of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, but then by the Spirit's power and God's grace, we set our will to desire the things above, the goodness of God, and, and we give up seeking and, and allowing our lives to be driven by the accumulation, the accumulation of all the things this world would give and say is good, and instead we are driven to know his good gifts. See, James wants them to be sure that God doesn't change. The God that saved you when you were bright-eyed and full of wonder and at what could be in life, the God who saved you, and now where you're under trial because you're following him, he's the same God. He's the same God. And he's the same God who there who gave you eternal life, he is the same God here who gives His grace which is sufficient to carry you. He is the same God here who is generous and giving. He is the same God here. And imagine if all of a sudden, instead of being deceived and allowing our view of God to shift based on our circumstances or the voice of the enemy, all of a sudden, how, does the, how do these truths change how we view what He gives? How do these truths all of a sudden change how we view the creation He has made and said was good? How do these things change the the way we view the structures and institution He made and said are good? The family, government, church. By the way, if if we really believe that we have been walking in the will of God, that the, the, the family that God has allowed us to have, if I really believe that God led me to marry Bethany, then shame on me if I ever make fun of that relationship by going, oh, you know what this is? This is the world's smallest handcuff. Old ball and chain coming. You know what they call a wedding? A funeral for the living. Because you're not having any freedom after that. By the way, all of those are jokes I've heard pastors make. If following God's will into marriage is a good gift from above, then it should never be mocked as a ball and chain. If children are a gift from God, and I can see Jesse running down the hallway at the moment. (laughs) If children are a gift from God, then they are not rugrats. If children are a gift from God, yes, can children be frustrating? Absolutely. We've had hardly any sleep this week, and we're frustrated. But that better not ever touch me seeing Jesse as a gift that I don't in any way deserve at all. 
How does it change? How does it change my view of the trial I'm under? If God gives good gifts, then if I am facing a trial, whether that is a trial of loneliness or maybe that's a trial of persecution, how can it possibly be good? Well, we've already seen back at the beginning of James that God will allow trials in our life to perfect our faith, to grow us into maturity. Our problem in seeing the good there is we just can't see everything he's wanting to do because we're limited by the here and now. How, does, how do these truths change how we see what He gives? The salvation He offers is good. The, the, tri- the trials He gives are good because of what He does in and through all of it. By the way, our salvation, I'll just make mention, it says that what you and have, I have in Christ right now, church family, the angels who are in the very presence of God declaring holy, 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 they wish they could just get a quick little peek through the closet door for a second at what you and I have right now if you're in Christ. His salvation is good. The problem is we just easily get allured by other things and forget how good it is. So he says no God's character. He says no God's gifts and generosity. But he also, he also is this, no God's purpose. Look at verse 18. So don't be deceived. No God's purpose. Here's God's purpose. In the exercise of his will, or, or literally, this is what, the verb, this is what the, the, the verb describes, that God took counsel with himself and came to the delightful conclusion that it would be overjoyously pleasing to save people. No one coerced him. It was his own, out of his own free, sovereign goodness. And the counsel of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It said that it delighted, it delights the will of God. It delights the will of God to bring forth a people Here's here's what that means, church family. It delights the heart of God to save us. Now, process that for a moment. At some point, you and I were by nature filthy, gross, our righteousness disgusting in compare to God's. We were by nature in rebellion against Him, and it filled God's heart with joy and delight to go, oh man, I, I, I'm going to do everything to save you. It filled God's heart to go, hey Wes, you're a sinner. Without me, you've got to pay the consequences of it, but oh, I have sent Jesus. That's why it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and paid our price. Which means if you've been saved by grace through faith, then even on your absolute worst day where you go, oh my goodness, God must be absolutely ashamed of me, it means it still delights God's heart to have saved you and to be working out his salvation in your life, even in your worst moment. By the way, if you don't know Christ, understand that it would delight. That's why scripture says that there is more rejoicing in heaven than a single person coming to faith in Christ. God would delight to save you. God delights to save us. It's in contrast to the deception that would go, ah, God just puts up with me. Sure, I'm in the club. I got the Christian t-shirt, but I'm, I'm just like over in the peanut gallery. No. There is no child of God who's sitting over in the cheap seats of the bleachers. He saves us to be sons and daughters seated at his table, and that delights his heart. Delights his heart to bring forth a people. It delights his heart to, bring, heart to bring forth that people in line with his word of truth. You know what it's, notice what it says there. He brought us, brought us forth with the word of truth, meaning the gospel message, the message of Jesus' coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
This is the gospel message that, that Jesus came and lived the life we can't live. He paid the price we rightfully deserve. He rose again doing what we cannot. And he will offer forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation by his grace to the one who responds in faith. But that's the way it happens through the gospel message. There is one road that leads to heaven. There's not multiple. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It delights God's heart to save, and it delights God's heart to save through the gospel message. There is no other way. All religions do not ultimately lead to the same God. All faith, it, it does matter. In fact, a poll came out that even said there's a, there's a strong, over a third of pastors in America say it doesn't matter what faith you have, just that you have faith. False. It does matter what faith you have because all faiths don't lead you to Christ and the word of truth. So his purpose, his purpose comes, his purpose is to bring forth the people, his purpose is to save us through the gospel message, his purpose is to make us the first fruits of his creation. They say, Pastor, what's that mean? It means three simple things. It means that his purpose comes with a position. The idea of first fruits is that you take all of, right, we offer our tithes and offerings, they're supposed to be offered out of our first fruits out of the very best. You take the very best and you give them to God as they are completely and totally under, uh, uh, belong to Him. Meaning that to be His first fruits, when God saves us, when you come to faith by grace through faith, church family, it means we need to not be deceived. We don't come to faith and are on the team and now we're free to do as we want, but great, we've got the get out of jail free card. No, it means that we are His first fruits. All of us are, all of me as His child is a first fruit, meaning that I no longer have any rights to my life. He has all the rights to my life. As Peter will say, I am a person for his possession. If we are part of the church, part of the body of Christ by grace through faith, then we are a people for his possession. We don't have the right to do what we want. We have the right to follow him. We are his. It comes with a position, meaning that it's not my life and I can do what I want now and do it my way. My life is his, bought with a price, with the precious blood of God. Precious blood of Christ. It means his purpose comes with a mission. To be the first fruits of something implies that there will be more fruit coming. It comes with a mission, church family. God has called each and every one of us, and we do not need to be deceived. The mission of making disciples is not my mission as your pastor. It's our mission as the people of God. And if we're going to sit on the back and go, all right, we got five good pastors, we're, we're going we're to enable them to do all the evangelism for the church, we will reach hardly nobody. Because God didn't just put the backs of disciple-making, of evangelism on the backs of the pastors, God put it on the backs of the church. Part of our job as pastors is to equip you, to equip us to go do it. Which means, church family, God intends for there to be a mission in your life where you are verbally, you are, you are actively, moment by moment, living the gospel. You are verbally sharing the gospel to other people. And if someone ever came to faith in Christ, God actually expects you to be part of discipling them into maturity. It comes with a mission, church family, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to be his mission. This contrasts with the deception that, ah, oh, we just leave it all up to the professional clergy. They're the one. No, his mission is on all of us because we're his first fruits. But first fruits also means his purpose comes with a destiny. It's got a position, it comes with a mission, it comes with a destiny. To be the first fruits, it says, of his 
creation. Now, here's the real reality, church family. We have a destiny. Right now, we live on mission as ambassadors in a place that is not our home. Because our home's coming. Jesus is coming. And when He returns, Scripture's clear. That ultimately, the dead in Christ will rise. We will be given resurrected bodies. Your body will never betray you again because you will get a resurrected body. It'll never hurt. There will be no more aches. You probably won't need sleep or food because it'll be perfect. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where God makes His dwelling place on earth in the sight of those who are saved. And amongst that glorious new recreation, you and I, Scripture is clear, God is God, and the pinnacle of everything else that exists in eternity are us, His children. We'll be greater than the angels. In fact, we'll be part of judging the angels. We're greater than the rest of creation. In fact, right now, Romans 8 says that all of creation cries out for the, for the end result of our salvation. The end result of our salvation and what God has done to save us is not just reconciling us to Him, but it'll ultimately be to fix all of the pains of creation. No more hurricanes. No more tornadoes. No more natural disasters. No more stars burning out. No more comes with a destiny, church family. And we cannot be deceived into thinking that all of what it means to be a Christian is to have a get-out-of-hell-free card and to have as prosperous a life this side of heaven as we can. That's not our destiny. That's actually a really cheap replacement for living in light of the destiny that God has for us because it delighted His heart to bring forth a people through the word of truth to be the first fruits of his creation. So church family, we need to make sure today that we do not allow ourselves to be deceived by the world, that we do not allow ourselves to be deceived by our own doubts, that we allow, instead of in the face of that deception, that we come to the word of God, to the word of truth, and we allow what he says about himself, what he says about how he does things, what he says about the world, to be what we believe, even if we are in the midst of hard and challenging trials where we hear the shouts of deception all over. Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted, even tempted to deception. Instead, in faith, we stand on the Word of God, knowing who He is, knowing what He gives, and knowing what His purpose in our lives with His salvation is. So that rather than being deceived, we will know Him, we will know His fullness, we will know the goodness of His gift, and we will live a life filled and for His purpose. To His and our joy for all eternity. Oh, may it be. Taste and see that the Lord is good, church family. Let's pray. Father, may we. Um, God, I know in my own life, as I have processed and prayed through this passage, Lord, and you know this. Because of things I have experienced, it is very easy for me to focus and to um, 
to get hung up on the fact that, God, you do. You do allow us to suffer. There are certain kinds of persecution for you. Is, is, is said in your word as a gift of grace because it means we're walking with you. But Lord, but sometimes I can take that to an extreme where all of a sudden I can just think the only thing you dole out is suffering. And even that misses the point. God, for all of us in this place, we face different circumstances, different, different trials, different things. We hear different voices trying to deceive, trying to give us a lesser version of who you are. Father, may we not be deceived today, but may we, in love, believe who you are, believe you are who you say you are. May we rest in the truth of who you are. That you are a good God who is seeking to mature us as your sons and daughters, that you are a good God who delights to give wisdom when we don't have the wisdom we need, that you are a good God who gives good gifts, who is faithful to his word and to his people. So Jesus, if there are any struggling with doubts today, Lord, may they reckon with your truth. If there are any in this place or online today who do not know you, and Holy Spirit, if they are sensing your conviction on their heart, May they not waste. May they not delay. But may they trust you in repentance and faith and know your grace. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.